Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, October 4th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. Ukraine claims new gains, while Russia will consult on where their border goes. Bolsonaro and Lula go to Brazil's runoff election. The Supreme Court declines to hear bump stock and vaccine mandate cases, but will take on affirmative action. Indonesia investigates a soccer stampede that killed over 100. Burkina Faso's Damiba resigns after a coup. Yemen's truce expires. Somalia's government says it killed Al-Shabaab's co-founder. The UK reverses its plan to cut taxes on the richest. And Tesla unveils its Optimus humanoid robot. Our top story is day 222 of the fighting in Ukraine as Ukrainian forces claim new gains and Russia seeks to consult locals on the borders of annexation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Associated Press, Politico, Newsbud, and Ukraine Forum. Following a Russian retreat in the Donetsk city of Lyman, followed by confirmation from Ukrainian troops that they've recaptured the city on Sunday, Ukrainian forces reportedly continued to press against Russian adversaries and reclaim its territories. This offensive was in the southern region of Kherson. While Ukraine's counteroffensive in the south hasn't enjoyed the same success as in the Kharkiv region, on Sunday, Ukrainian forces claimed to have broken through Russian defenses in the village of Kreschanivka. In his nightly address, Ukrainian President Zelensky also claimed to have retaken control of two other nearby settlements. Kirill Strezmuzov, a Russian-appointed official in the Kherson region, acknowledged that Ukrainian forces have broken through a little deeper, but insisted that everything is under control and that Russia's defense system is working in the region. The reported gains, which come in territories Russia has recently annexed in referendums not accepted by the international community, raise questions as to how the country will respond, given that Russian President Putin said he would protect the territories using all our forces and means. Further complicating matters, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said on Monday that Russia will continue to consult with locals in annexed territories regarding the borders of Kherson and Zaporizhia. This has created confusion as to whether Russia sees all of the regions as theirs or whether their dominion is limited to territories it currently controls militarily. Meanwhile, Russian attacks were reported in the region of Zaporizhia, where one person was reported injured, in addition to the regions of Mykolaiv, Dnipropetrovsk, and Donetsk, with no additional reports of civilian injuries. Pro-Russia separatists in Donetsk reported that two civilians were killed and three more were injured in Ukrainian shelling. Scott, thank you for the facts. And during this podcast, we always feature spins that have emerged from the story. And for this one, we're going to start with an anti-Russian narrative coming from PBS NewsHour. This invasion is an egregious violation of international law. Putin's ultimate aim is to restore the Soviet empire, even if it takes massive bloodshed and false pretexts, such as calling the 2014 Ukrainian revolution after an election a coup. This unprovoked attack is the latest chapter in Putin's Orwellian attempt to rewrite history. National Security Archive gives us the contra point of view, a pro-Russia narrative. NATO and the U.S. have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification. These concerns are legitimate, and taking them seriously would have avoided the Ukraine tragedy. And there's a nerd narrative saying that there's a 26% chance that Ukraine will have de facto control of at least 90% of the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts by January 1st, 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Wow, this... 
conflict is getting more and more complex on one side. There's argument over the West and what does it mean to fight in the war? Do you have to physically fight or can you just contribute arms and, and supplies? On the other side, you can't attack Russia itself, but what if Russia changes the borders of what Russia is? That's getting crazy. They lost me at the uh, uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. I mean, I thought that was getting complicated in and of itself. They yeah. almost lost you. They almost lost all of us. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> In our next story, news from Brazil as the presidential race goes to a Bolsonaro-Lula runoff. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, MarketWatch, Reuters, and Independent. Brazil's Electoral Superior Court announced on Sunday that President Jair Bolsonaro and former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva will compete in a second-round runoff on October 30th, after no candidate won over 50% of the vote in the presidential election. With over 99% of electronic votes counted, Left-wing Lula da Silva is leading with 48.4% of the vote against 43.2% for the right-wing incumbent Bolsonaro. More than 123 million Brazilians turned out to vote on Sunday, with 32 million abstaining. This result comes after opinion polls predicted an outright majority for Lula da Silva. On Saturday, Dada Fola published a survey giving Lula da Silva a 14-point lead over Bolsonaro after interviewing 12,800 people. Bolsonaro's allies won 19 out of the 27 contested Senate seats, with the current vote count suggesting a strong showing in the lower house as well. The voting process was virtually free of political violence, despite widespread fears to the contrary. Supreme Court Justice Alexandre de Moraes, who also heads the Superior Electoral Court, praised the safe, calm, harmonious, and peaceful election. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a left narrative spin on this story, and it comes from The Guardian. Bolsonaro has overseen an abysmal response to COVID, severe economic mismanagement, accelerated deforestation of the Amazon, soaring inflation, rising poverty rates, and a surge in membership of neo-Nazi groups. His administration has represented little more than a full-on assault on public services and the environment in favor of capital. While Lula is running more to the center than as a left-leaning progressive, his popularity shows that Brazil is ready to move on. And when there's a left narrative, you can count on there being a right narrative. And this one comes from Breitbart. Lula's corruption conviction was overturned by a Supreme Federal Tribunal, which consists of ministers appointed either by Lula or his successors Dilma Rousseff and Michel Temer. While the mainstream media claims that Bolsonaro threatens democracy and the environment, during Lula's two terms as president, Brazil deepened ties with authoritarian states such as China, Cuba, Russia, and Venezuela. And when there's a left narrative and a right narrative, you can sometimes count on there being a cynical narrative. And here's one from the Washington Post. Although the Brazilian electoral dispute between a vengeful left and a toxic right will be hyped as a turning point for the nation, whoever takes office will have to deal with the hyper-fragmented party system that only benefits the central or the big middle, the congressional majority without clear principles that have historically been able to control presidents. And with those three narratives, the nerds don't want to be left out either. So they're saying that there's a 19% chance that Jair Bolsonaro will be president of Brazil on January 2nd, 2023. And that comes from the Metaculous Prediction Community. The Supreme Court declines to hear gun rights case on bump stocks. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Examiner, BearingArms.com, NBC, and ABC. On Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to take two cases that challenged a ban on bump stocks, 
gun attachments designed to allow semi-automatic guns to fire rapidly in a similar fashion to machine guns. Bump stocks were banned during Trump's administration following a 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas that killed 58 people. The shooter employed the technology, which uses the recoil of a trigger pull, to enable a shooter to fire up to hundreds of rounds per minute. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, or ATF, implemented the ban under a 1986 law banning machine guns, including certain accessories, making the possession of a bump stock a felony, punishable by up to 10 years in prison and a $250,000 fine. The Supreme Court previously declined to block the ban in 2019, and several lower courts have upheld the decision since. The new cases were brought by a Utah gun lobbyist who had bought a bump stock before the ban took effect, and a collection of gun rights groups led by the Gun Owners of America. The plaintiff's brief argued that a bump stock fails to meet either prong of Congress's carefully crafted and unambiguous definition of a machine gun. Although the Supreme Court refused to hear the two cases, another gun activist is currently awaiting a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision on the legality of bump stocks. Thank you for the facts, Scott. And Bearing Arms gives us the right narrative for this story. This is a dangerous Supreme Court decision that enables the government to further encroach on Second Amendment liberties by defining thousands of bump stock owners as felons. This will only embolden the executive branch to pursue its goal of criminalizing all gun ownership. Independent brings us a left narrative spin. Lower courts were correct to leave the ban in place, and together with this Supreme Court decision, Americans are being protected from future massacres akin to the tragedy that occurred in Las Vegas. Dangerous bump stocks, which are correctly categorized by the ATF, will become harder to obtain by criminals and lawful gun users alike. And Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative. It says there's a 1% chance that the Second Amendment, as written and in force on December 13, 2018, will be successfully amended or repealed before January 1st, 2025. In our next story, the Supreme Court will decide on landmark cases this term. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, USA Today, and NewsBud. On Monday, the new term for the Supreme Court will begin with several landmark cases expected to be argued and decided during the court's nine-month term. The court convenes in the face of a Gallup poll released last week that said 58% of Americans disapprove of the job that Supreme Court is doing, the worst rating since the year 2000. The court, which has a 6-3 to three conservative majority since former President Trump made three lifetime appointments during his term, proved its tilting to the right with rulings that ended the constitutional right to abortion and expanded gun rights last term. President Biden's first appointee, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the first ever black woman justice, will take her spot on the bench. First up on the docket will be Sackett versus EPA, an environmental case that could limit the scope of the Clean Water Act of 1972. Among race-related cases, the Supreme Court is expected to hear arguments for Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and Students for Fair Admissions versus the University of North Carolina, both cases about race-conscious admissions at universities, Merrill versus Milligan, a challenge to the Voting Rights Act and its relation to an Alabama electoral map, and Holland versus Brackeen, a challenge to the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978. In Moore versus Harper, the court is expected to decide the breadth of power state legislatures have in election-related issues without being hindered by state courts. Another high-profile case, 
303 Creative LLC versus Alinas will decide whether an artist can receive an exemption from the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act to avoid creating pieces that are in opposition to beliefs, specifically same-sex marriage in this case. Thanks, Eric, for those facts. Town Hall gives us the Republican narrative spin. If the last Supreme Court term wasn't enough of a series of victories for conservative values, this upcoming term promises to provide even more reasons to rejoice. Based on the Supreme Court's past willingness to hear certain cases, unfair affirmative action policies will likely be abolished and freedom of religion upheld. And there's a Democratic narrative coming from Alternet. America's trust in the Supreme Court has never been lower. This is because of the court's willingness to ignore precedent and, in some cases, compelling facts to make ideological rulings. There might be more conservative victories in this term, but those decisions will continue to erode the court's legitimacy. A scary prospect for the American people. And yet another story coming out of the Supreme Court as they decline to hear a case on vaccine mandates. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, USA Today, and NewsBud. The Supreme Court on Monday declined to hear a case brought by Missouri and nine other states challenging the Biden administration's COVID vaccine mandate for workers in health care facilities that receive federal funds. In January, the court voted five to four with conservative justices John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh siding with more liberal judges to allow the mandate to continue while arguments played out in lower courts. In the majority opinion from January, the Supreme Court wrote that the Department of Health and Human Services could continue its mandate given that the core mission of workers dealing with Medicare and Medicaid patients is to protect their patients' health and safety. The plaintiffs, however, argue that the mandate, which affects 10.4 million workers nationwide, minus some religious and medical exemptions, has allegedly exacerbated healthcare worker shortages and is now devastating small, rural, and community-based healthcare facilities. Also in January, the Supreme Court voted 6-3 overruling the Biden administration's vaccine mandate for businesses with 100 or more employees, stating that the Office of Occupational Safety and Health Administration overstepped its authority. There are two spins that have emerged from this story, beginning with the Democratic narrative coming from the New Hampshire Union leader. Not only has the Supreme Court established the Biden administration's legal grounds for its vaccine mandate, but it's also expressed the moral duty of every healthcare worker to do no harm. The vaccine mandate is for the good of the caregiver, the patient, and the U.S. as a nation. This mandate is a prudent health and safety measure. And Washington Examiner brings us the Republican narrative. Though his White House handlers have worked to backtrack his statement, President Biden, as well as Dr. Fauci, have declared the pandemic over. So why are millions of healthcare workers still under the emergency power-induced vaccine mandate? This policy corrals more patients onto Medicaid and then uses the federally funded argument to force those patients' caregivers to get the jab. And we turn our attention to Indonesia, where there has been an investigation launched over the deadly soccer stampede. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Jakarta Post, Guardian, BBC News and Al Jazeera. On Monday, Indonesia's chief security minister, Malfoud MD, announced the establishment of an independent investigation into a deadly stampede that took place on Saturday at a soccer match in Malang, East Java. This comes a day after hundreds of people attended vigils to honor the victims and demanded an investigation into the police actions that took place outside the Kanjuruan Stadium in the country's capital, Jakarta. 
after supporters of host Arima FC invaded the playing area to protest against a 3-2 loss against rivals Parasabaya Surabaya, riot police fired tear gas in an attempt to disperse the crowd. At least 125 people died, including 32 children, and more than 323 were injured as spectators fled the venue. Though soccer's world-governing body FIFA stresses in its safety guidance, that crowd control gas shouldn't be used or carried by personnel or police inside stadiums, East Java's police chief Nico Afinta has claimed that this was the last resource to stop the violence. Indonesia's President Joko Widodo has urged all national top league games to be suspended until an investigation is concluded, while also ordering a safety review and security improvements. Hooliganism and violence have long spoiled soccer in the country, with 78 deaths recorded in game-related incidents over the past 28 years, according to local watchdog Save Our Soccer. Thanks for the facts on this tragic story, Eric. The Jakarta Post brings us Narrative A. This tragedy isn't an accident, but a grave crime. If the police hadn't over-responded to the playing field surge by fans, this bloodbath wouldn't have occurred. An independent investigation will ensure that the truth will come out, preventing police cover-ups, and those responsible will be held accountable. Narrative B coming from DW. This is a deeper structural problem in Indonesia. Though needed, investigating police actions and holding those responsible accountable isn't enough. Police aren't equipped or trained to deal properly with soccer crowds, despite fans having an infamously violent culture. On top of that, Indonesia's sports facilities lack standard security protocols. A deeper review needs to happen. Scott, have you ever been involved in, in like a mass kind of a riot situation at a sporting event? I, not a sporting event, but in uh, I was at a Guns N' Roses concert one time. when and That's uh, all you need to say. <laughs> <laughs> And a political shakeup in Burkina Faso as Damiba agrees to resign after a coup. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, NPR Online News, DW, France 24, Politico, and Al Jazeera. On Sunday, Lieutenant Colonel Paul-Henri Damiba reportedly agreed to step down as Burkina Faso's interim president on conditions that include guaranteeing his safety and respecting the deadline to return to civilian rule within two years. This comes after a faction of the Burkinabe military seized power in Burkina Faso on Friday and appointed Captain Ibrahim Traoré as the country's new president. His predecessor, Damiba, had himself come to power in a military coup in January after toppling former president Rockmark Christian Kabore. The new self-declared military leader dissolved the government and the constitution, accusing former head of state Damiba of betraying the country after failing to quell attacks linked to militant extremists such as the Islamic State Group, IS, and Al-Qaeda, which instead continued to spread across the country. Meanwhile, the new leadership said the situation was back under control after protesters targeted the French embassy in Burkina Faso's capital, Ouagadougou, on Saturday. Troré alleged Damiba was hiding in a French base to launch a counteroffensive. In the wake of Burkina Faso's second coup this year, Protesters called on the new leadership to cooperate with Russia in fighting the Islamist insurgency. While Traoré reportedly seized Amoeba as an ally of Burkina Faso's former colonizer, France, the new leadership reportedly announced its willingness to approach other partners. 
Meanwhile, France, the UN, the African Union, and the Economic Community of West African States on Sunday condemned Burkina Faso's latest coup. Since 2015, thousands have been killed and some two million displaced in the landlocked West African nation amid the region's spreading Islamist insurgency. Scott, thank you for that. And this story has generated three different spins, beginning with an establishment critical narrative is coming from the World Socialist website. The recent coup and protests in Burkina Faso are an expression of growing frustration in the country and throughout the Sahel over France's neo-colonial ambitions under the guise of fighting terrorism. Only when Paris abandons its complicity with regional elites and its exploitative policies will truly independent African nations succeed in overcoming jihadist terrorism. A pro-establishment narrative is generated by foreign policy. The coup in Burkina Faso should be a serious concern for Western governments. Taking advantage of the growing anti-French sentiment in the Sahel region, Moscow is now also likely to try to gain a foothold in Burkina Faso with the help of its Wagner mercenaries. There is no doubt, however, that Russia's aim isn't to fight terrorism but to secure access to the natural resources of fragile African nations. And there is a narrative C being provided by Le Monde. Recent events in Burkina Faso are bad news on the road to a possible democratic transition. The renewed political instability is also likely to play into the hands of Islamists, thereby exacerbating the severe humanitarian situation. It should not be forgotten that Burkina Faso is dealing with one of the world's largest displacement crises, with security incidents up to 220% compared to last year. This internal instability does not help. Man, such a sad state of affairs. I guess one of the most likely outcomes to a military coup is another military coup, right? Oh, my goodness. Sadly. In our next story, a Yemen truce expires. And here are the facts agreed upon by the Sana'a Center for Strategic Studies, Middle East Eye, Al Jazeera, and PBS NewsHour. The six-month truce between the Iran-backed Houthi rebels and the Saudi and UAE-backed Yemeni government expired on Sunday without being extended as fears of a renewal of large-scale fighting grow. The truce was originally implemented in April and since then has been renewed twice. But now both sides are becoming reluctant to continue the ceasefire. The UN's Yemen envoy, Hans Grunberg, called for the continuation of talks to reach an agreement. Ceasefire violations from both sides have been common, but high-intensity fighting has diminished, with the truce being the first major pause in the eight-year-long conflict that started in 2014. The Houthis' partial siege of the city of Taiz has been one of the main points of contention between the two sides. Talks to open the main roads into Taiz, which is controlled by the Houthis, have continued to stall. Though fighting between the Houthis and the government had largely paused since April, Recent fighting between Yemen's Islamist Islah Party and the UAE-backed Giants Brigade pointed to a growing divide within the government's Presidential Leadership Council, or PLC. Since the conflict began in 2014, Yemen's civil war has triggered one of the world's worst ongoing humanitarian crises, killing more than 150,000 people and displacing millions of civilians. The National brings us the pro-establishment narrative on this story. The Houthis have continued to threaten peace and security in Yemen since they launched their coup in 2014, and the failure to renew the truce is no different. What is the point of implementing an agreement if one side does not fulfill its promises? In this case, the Houthis refuse to lift the siege of Taiz and allow humanitarian aid into the city 
which was one of the key points in the agreement. And the establishment critical narrative coming from Al-Mayadeen. It's the Yemeni government and its powerful Gulf allies who have obstructed peace in Yemen and continue to punish its citizens for standing up for themselves. The Saudi-led coalition hasn't taken the truce or its terms seriously, and the only reason fighting hasn't broken out is because the Houthis have acted with restraint and caution. Peace will only be found when the siege of Yemen is lifted. And the Washington Post brings us a cynical narrative on this story. The war in Yemen, now in its eighth year, is every bit as brutal as what's taking place in Ukraine, and both sides have violated the agreed ceasefire on numerous occasions. The West's failure to address this humanitarian disaster or cover it in the media with any sort of urgency says a lot about the world's inherent bias and who is considered worthy versus unworthy victims. You know, Eric, there's if you want to learn more about uh, the conflict in Yemen, there's a, uh, a YouTube video on Improve the News' YouTube page in the Controversies Explained series. Notable of the video, the narration on it is really, really outstanding. I, I have actually really, ch- really good. It is. You know what? I have checked that video out, too. And uh, you are correct. The, the voice talent on that video is outstanding. Whoever it is, whoever it, this this mystery person is, is just a phenomenon. It, I mean, I, that, I heard he's really, really great guy too. Yeah, and you know what? That's what makes the video. In fact, I took that video and I showed it to my whole family. We we're planning a special event around that video next month. Mm, that's good, right? You like a family reunion Fam- deal? Forget yes. that. We're gonna watch this video. We're gonna watch yeah. this video. Just listen to the guy on there. This this guy's amazing. It's weird because he sounds good looking. <laughs> isn't that isn't that weird? And our next story comes from Somalia, as their government says it killed Al-Shabaab's co-founder. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, Fox 44, Waco, Texas, and The Times. The Somali government said on Sunday that it had successfully killed one of the co-founders of Al-Shabaab, an Al-Qaeda-affiliated Islamist militant group, in a joint operation with international partners the previous day. Al-Shabaab didn't immediately comment on Abdullahi Nadir's death, and the insurgents claimed responsibility for a new attack on Monday. Nadir was the group's chief prosecutor and was in line to replace its leader, Ahmed Duryea, who is reportedly sick. In a statement, the government said it's grateful to the Somali people and international friends whose cooperation facilitated the killing of this leader who was an enemy of the Somali nation. The U.S. had put a $3 million bounty on Nadir's head, and he was allegedly killed in Haramka village in the middle Yuba region by an airstrike. The killing comes after Somali President Hassan Sheikh promised a total war against al-Shabaab after his election in May, and U.S. President Biden allowed the Pentagon to target a dozen suspected leaders of the group. The operation was part of a redeployment of several hundred U.S. troops, reversing former President Trump's decision to draw down U.S. presence in the East African nation. Scott, two spins have been generated from this story, beginning with an establishment critical narrative coming from Global Times. The fact that Mogadishu has turned to the U.S. of all countries for assistance in its fight against al-Shabaab is just another example of America's desire for regional dominance. It's certainly no coincidence that Washington decided in May to redeploy troops to Somalia under the guise of fighting terrorism. In reality, Washington is primarily concerned with containing the growing influence of China, as well as Russia, in this strategically important region. And foreign policy brings us the pro-establishment narrative. 
After Trump decided to withdraw U.S. troops from Somalia, there was an uptick in terrorist violence. The fact that the Somali federal government is now making progress fighting al-Shabaab terrorists is primarily due to the return of U.S. troops to the country and America's military cooperation with Mogadishu. Since al-Shabaab poses a direct threat to the U.S. itself as well, defeating the terrorists is also a matter of national security. Turning our attention to the United Kingdom as they reverse a cut to 45% tax rate. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Newsbud, CNBC, and New York Times. After proposing a cut to the highest tax bracket in its mini-budget on September 23rd, the United Kingdom government reportedly reversed its plan on Monday in response to backlash. The announcement of the plan, which would have reduced the top bracket from 45% to 40%, Part of a growth plan to be funded by vast government borrowing led to the value of the pound plummeting and was met with opposition from several senior lawmakers. The mini-budget, which Prime Minister Liz Truss said also included cuts to the basic rate for low earners, a cut in taxes on house purchases, and a decision not to raise the corporate tax, was criticized by some as a giveaway to the wealthy, despite being the centerpiece of Truss's campaign. The United Kingdom government has already pledged to spend tens of billions of pounds to protect people from surging gas and electricity bills this winter, with former Tory cabinet minister Michael Grove saying the tax cut was, quote, not conservative and strongly suggesting he'd vote against it. With cutting taxes having been a part of Truss's campaign, the news leaves her months-old government in flux. It also raises questions about the future of Quarteng who had pushed for the cuts along with other free market policies. The pound rose sharply on Monday after the announcement, with the sterling 0.08% higher against the dollar at one point before dipping to $1.12 by 7.30 a.m. London time. All right, Eric, we have a left narrative spin here from Metro. Liz Truss's mini-budget was a failed proposal from the outset, and her attempt to throw Chancellor Quartang under the bus shows how ill-prepared she was to push this profoundly concerning policy. Though choosing not to cut taxes on the rich is a good thing, there's no doubt she would have pushed ahead if it weren't for the backlash she received from members of her own conservative party. Thank you, Scott. The right narrative is coming from iNews UK. The problem wasn't the mini-budget itself, but the way Prime Minister Truss and her team communicated it to the public. The multiple tax breaks, which weren't just for the rich, were an attempt to generate economic growth. And it needed time to play out and see how the market reacted. If Truss had communicated her goals more clearly, she may have received the support she needed, and her plan could have worked. I hope this podcast takes off. Every time I do my budget, it comes out as a mini budget. <laughs> <laughs> and our final story, straight out of the mind of James Cameron, as Tesla unveils an Optimus humanoid robot. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by TechCrunch, Forbes, NBC, The Verge, and Business Insider. On Friday, Tesla unveiled a prototype of its Optimus humanoid robot that for the first time was able to perform without support. It was seen walking, raising its hands, and executing other basic functions. The robot was revealed at Tesla's AI 2022, with Elon Musk promising to deliver a commercial product that will likely cost consumers less than $20,000. While there has yet to be a set time frame for availability, Musk mentioned that the product could be ready for purchase in three to five years. 
The robot contains a 2.3 kilowatt hour battery pack and runs on a Tesla state of charge with Wi-Fi and LTE capabilities. According to Musk, Tesla's robots differ from other manufacturers' designs in that they are created for the mass production of millions of units. During the unveiling, several robots were brought on stage in various phases of production. The robots will reportedly be tested by working jobs in Tesla factories. According to Musk, this latest reveal is part of Tesla's effort to become more than just a company that makes cool cars and to reshape into an industry leader in artificial intelligence. Musk predicts that Optimus will have a monumental impact on civilization and the economy, which he says is limited by people and productivity. Musk said that an economy becomes quasi-infinite with AI that can handle manual labor. Thank you for the facts on that story, Scott. There are three spins that have emerged, beginning with Narrative A, coming from IEEE Spectrum. Tesla is failing to meet the standard it set for itself. There was nothing wrong with the Optimus prototype, but there was nothing right with it either. Based on what was unveiled, Tesla's robot will not make the same industry splash as Musk did with the SpaceX and electric cars. Clean Technica brings us Narrative B. Tesla has secured the best AI talent to build Optimus, and the outlook of this latest venture is promising. A fully functioning robot could increase labor and productivity, potentially changing the economy as we know it. Musk's robot will encompass the same Tesla vision approach used on its industry-changing cars. Why shouldn't Optimus experience the same success? And the conversation provides us with a cynical narrative for this story. Regardless of whether Optimus is successful or not, the intent behind its production is concerning. This type of technology can completely alter our future and revamp our industries. While this may sound like a good thing, our environment was made by humans for humans, and in its attempt to fit into our domain, this endeavor could bring more problems than it's worth. Scott, I've always thought it would be fun to take some of the concepts, ideas, and patents from Tesla and then create my own stuff, my own company, and call it Marconi. Mm, <laughs> right, right. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, October 4th, 2022. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. <laughs>